0: Guys, we are back. This is now week number five of Unleashed. and I can only put them on one hand for this week, and now we're we're moving on. Well, we're ready to get going. We're ready to light this candle, get things going. And Eric, before we get started,
1: you said that we had, is it two questions come in? Two questions. Man, these guys are getting greedy. <laughs> just kidding. Well, just some clarification questions. So somebody wrote in and wanted to know, uh, what is a. What's the difference between a brown bear and a Kodiak bear? Oh,
0: yeah. You know, I was confused on that for a long time, too. When you're thinking about bears, you have intercoastal bears in Alaska, and then you have, you know, your coastal bears. And so they made like a line of demarcation kind of a deal where that the inland bears are more like your, your grizzlies and your, your coastal bears are your brown bears. Okay. So, yeah, so, there's not really that much difference between them. But,
1: but they're all brown.
0: Yeah. And, and you do get your coastal bears being a little bit bigger because you have a lot more of the salmon runs you know, coming in in these areas. And so you get a lot of salmon, big salmon, big bears. Okay. So yeah, these things, they're spooky. I th- I talked about them last week. Um, man, they're spooky. When you get down on the rivers with these things and you're filming and you've got headphones on and you've got your camera and you're, and you're focused on, maybe they're catching salmon at a waterfall and you just, all of a sudden you feel this presence beside you because you're focused, right? On what you're filming and you'll have a brown bear walk, you know, five, six yards beside you heading to the falls that you didn't even know was there.
1: Yikes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's pretty, pretty hairy stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know,
0: what's really funny is when we would go camping up there, I used to lead missions trips. And then in between the, you know, week one mission trip and the next one, which was two weeks later, uh, my buddy and I would take the guys that wanted to stay over to go play. You know, we would go, you know, digging razor clams out of Cook Inlet or go camping, you know, in some of these really cool places. And these guys would get their, their tents pitched, right? And it's so funny because, first of all, you know, sleeping in a, in a small tent in some of bear country, we call them bear tacos. I mean, they're just, you know, it's like yeah. nuts. It's crazy to think about doing that when you when you know what they're capable of. But when you get some of these guys, you know, from the lower 48 that have never, ever, you know, camped in bear territory, they get inside their tent and you walk around before it gets dark and you'll see some of these guys' heads bulging against the side of their tent And I used to love to reach down and put my hand over their head and say, you know, the very first thing that a bear goes after is the head. And you see that guy's head just kind of slide back in. You know, what's funny, uh, I took a group up there one time to to climb up an area called Crow Pass. It was about five miles to the top. But these guys had never been, you know, in this area before. You know, we're going up to look at some glaciers and there's some old, you know, gold mines from, you know, the early 1900s up there. But there's a sign, and I, I always do this when I take people to this location. There's a sign, and when they when they come, it says, you know, before you um, proceed back the trails here, it says, uh, you know, you need to um, take a couple of things with you. First of all, you need to make sure that you've got, you know, pepper spray, bear spray, you know, that shoots like 25 feet. You know, you need to have that that bear pepper spray with you. And then you need to have a jingle bell. You carry them on your backpack, and that lets the bears know you're in the area. I call them a dinner bell, but they give them to you and tell you just sure. to, yeah. and then the rest of the science says, and you need to be very familiar with the difference between black bear and brown bear scat. Black bear scat is school, it's full of squirrel, fur, and, and berry seeds, where brown bear scat is uh, full of jingle bells and smells like pepper spray.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh. oh. well, wow, that's nice.
0: It's just really unnerving, you know, yeah. when you're going up there. But you said we had another question? Okay,
1: second question. So I've actually had quite a few emails. Uh, I don't know how you're going to feel about this line of questioning, but um, I'm getting a lot of questions about animal fights. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, Rob from New York wrote in and wanted to know who would win between a wolverine and a chimpanzee. And The wolverine, he had some extra on there. Are you ready for this? The wolverine is a pocket knife and the chimpanzee has a back scratcher. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh, late night, Right. Late, it was, late uh, night. Yeah. Wow. I mean,
0: you're on two totally different continents here. How would you even get them together unless it was like at a zoo or, you know, some crazy thing? You know, monkeys really, they're scary. I was, um, we were in Kruger National Park, same trip where we talked about with Harry Woolhutter in one of the earlier episodes with the lions. We stopped at a little place in there, a little outdoor cafe, and my buddy Ralph and I and Wade were sitting around this table, and these monkeys just came out, and we were talking about these things and how how strong they really are, and Ralph went to go give them like a piece of something, a sandwich or something, and this, uh, the owner of the restaurant came flying out, you stupid Americans, he starts screaming, we're like, what is up with this guy? He said, we had a tourist come through here last week and did the same thing. And when that monkey, when they didn't have any more food, the monkey literally tore the guy's throat open. Wow. They are um, incredibly dangerous. You don't feed them because they just keep waiting for that next meal. Mm-hmm. And it's always, you know, the dominant one that goes first. And once he's done, you know, then everyone else can eat. Well, there wasn't enough food. And, and for whatever reason, he was just in a bad mood that day. I mean, it's, and, you know, Wolverines, um, you know, wolverines, their tracks, if you ever follow one in the wild, like in the snow, they, you can see the size of their claws, they're huge, and they're fearless. But these things, when they walk, they're, they're, their feet, their front feet are kind of offset a little bit. That's how you can kind of tell wolverine's tracks when you see it. And a buddy of mine was uh, flying up in, it was in the, in the wintertime in, in Alaska. And he was sitting in this little airport, you know, was one of these one building kind of things like you find up there. And he saw this guy, and this this guy had uh, uh, a, a, a wolverine ruff. He had, you know, his, his park had pulled up, and the front of it, the fur, was wolverine. Now, you don't find very many of those because wolverines are very, very hard to find, very, very difficult to trap. They're really, really smart, so you don't see too many wolverine ruffs. And when he um, got on the plane, this guy was sitting right beside it, but his ruff was still pulled up. Well, as my buddy looks down... He sees the guy's hands on the armrests, and he's got these huge purple and pink raised scars all over both of his hands.
1: Hmm.
0: And he, he looks over at the guy, and he says, I'll bet you didn't get those cutting yourself shaving. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> what a way to start a conversation, yeah. right? And so the guy pulls his rough back, and he kind of gives a little bit of a smile. And as he turns toward my buddy, his face has the same scars Oh wow! that his hands did. And I'm not going to tell you, we'll save this story for another time, but long story short, um, he got into a, a tussle with a Wolverine and it was a bad, bad situation.
1: What, um, what does a Wolverine weigh? I, you know,
0: you know, I, I don't know what the weight is. You know, they're, they'll, they won't back down from a Brown bear, but wow. they, you know, they're I mean, a 20th of the size of a Brown bear. They're small, sure. but man, they are, they are fearless. And huh. when they get those claws going, when they get mad, it's like a tornado of claws and their teeth. And, uh, yeah. So which one would win? I know the Wolverine went back down, so I don't know. Oh, wow. Maybe the maybe the, the chimpanzee is smart enough to grab a club and beat him. I don't have a clue. He does have the back scratcher. Oh, he does have the so back can scratcher. can whack him. Well, maybe if it was metal, and I don't know. Well, let's get into where we're going today. Like I said, let's light this candle. Let's kind of get things moving. You know, I love stories, obviously. I think you guys do, too. That's why you keep tuning into this. But. When I'm traveling a lot with my, like we just talked about, some of my friends, you know, I was in music for years, and I would be on tours with different guys, and we would you know, stop at restaurants and we we'd get all kinds of funny stories around the table. But one time we were traveling across the country, and this is back when I was still singing in Christian music. I was in a group called One, and we had been singing with Sandy Patty, and when we were opening up for her, and when that tour would be done, like we'd be out on a two or three week stint, um, we had a, a custom van built with a sound trailer that would come to wherever our last date was, and they would meet us there, and then we would do another, you know, week or so touring ourselves. And we had like an all-night drive. We were, we were so exhausted. We were tired. And this one guy that, that I was touring with, this guy had to pee every 20 minutes. I mean, I'm not kidding. It was, and he drank Diet Coke nonstop. He'd always have a huge Diet Coke sitting there. So we had an all-night drive. It was like 11 o'clock at night. We needed to get on the road. And, I think we were headed to Oklahoma from someplace. And we just said, listen, you are going to have to, like, go in the cup. You know, it's all guys in this band. And get in the back of the band, go in the cup. We can't keep stopping. I mean, it's 15, 20 minutes down the road, and he's begging to stop. And we're like, ugh. So we pull into this McDonald's, about the only thing that's open. And he goes flying, goes running in. And we're kind of laughing at him. You know, we're a little frustrated. but So we go in, and you know, like when you go back in a, in a McDonald's, you walk back the— uh the hallway and you have got the men's on the one side the women's on the other and so my buddy and I go in we use the bathroom we're washing our hands and i'm realizing that the other guy wasn't with us i mean he wasn't in the bathroom and i go where in the world did he go you see where this is going and so i open up the men's bathroom at the same time the women's door is opening here comes this beautiful blonde-haired woman her face is beet red and she is laughing she's got her hands over her face she's laughing hysterically And I look right behind her and there's my buddy come walking out behind her. I said, what are you doing in the women's bathroom? He says, you ain't never going to believe this. I said, what happened? He said, he says, I I didn't need a urinal. My stomach was all upset. He goes, so I'm looking for a stall. He said, so I go in the stall. I'm sitting there maybe 30 seconds and someone came in the bathroom and they sat down in the stall next to me and he goes, I thought it was you. I look down, I see the tennis shoes. He goes, I honestly, I thought they were your tennis shoes. He said, so I'm making all kinds of noise. And he says, and you're not laughing. He said, so I take my hands and put them over my mouth, and I'm making even more noises with my hands now. And he goes, and you're still not laughing. He goes, so I start taking toilet paper off the roll, and I'm throwing it over the top Uh, of the stall. He says, I come walking out, and here's this woman washing her hands. And he goes, no. She's like, yes. uh, And that woman that came walking out, that's how I met my wife. Wow. Wow. Okay, that was a lie. Oh, well, it's gonna, But it makes a good for say. a good story. But the rest of it was true.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, uh, How I Met Your Mother, it's a great episode. Right. About. But, you know, we always, we have this saying, challenges
0: are gifts. You know, that somehow out of these things, you know, we learn. And so I thought we'd kind of start today off with a, you know, a kind of a lighthearted story. Because we know that the challenges, um, you know, when we say challenges are gifts, I have people all the time saying, then why does it feel like Christmas all the time? I mean, I'm getting so many gifts in the way of challenges. I'm just tired. And, you know, when we're young, you know, we're taught, um, you know, by our our parents or our community or whatever, how to um, handle difficult circumstances. And, you know, we we just went through in a couple of the last episodes, you know, we talked about identity, who we really are in Christ. That is key to everything. Uh, We talked about the big lie that we buy into, which is that my performance plus others' opinions equals my self-worth. We talked about learning how to take our spiritual temperature so we know if that voice we're hearing in our head, is it coming from God or the enemy? And we talked then about declawing the lies of the enemy. We talked about um, how do we um, through the renewing of our mind, get rid of unhealthy thoughts, emotions, and actions, you know, reshaping our belief system. So it was about, let me think, probably around 2008. My son would have been about maybe 12 years old. He, I think maybe it's was 2007. And so I, I take him to go to a game dinner I'm speaking for. Now, if you don't know what game dinners are, you, you get a lot of outdoorsmen come together and they give away all kinds of prizes. And uh, the speaker talks about all kinds of adventure stuff, just like we're doing here, and then wraps it up at the end, you know, so that, you know, a lot of those guys who would never darken the door of a church will want to come back because they feel like it's safe and something they might be interested in. And I wanted to take my son with me on this trip. I wanted him to kind of see, you know, what I was doing at these events. And I'm figuring, you know, 12 years old is a really teachable time. So we drive. It was in Joliet, Illinois. It was about four and a half hours away from where we live here in Indiana. And we get to the hotel and I've got my camo backpack and I've got a bow case and I'm taking it into the hotel. And as I walk in, I see this, this woman, she's eating this chicken sandwich. And as I come walking up, she turns to the woman behind her that's working there as well. And she says, hey, you want the rest of my chicken sandwich? And the woman puts her hands up. She goes, I, I couldn't eat a thing. I'm, I'm stuffed. So she takes the chicken sandwich, throws it in the trash and she turns to me. And she goes, can I help you? I said, yeah. I said, uh, my son and I need to check in. Um, we've got an event down the street tonight and they're, they're putting it on a direct bill. I said, I think the name of the church is Friendship Baptist Church or something. And she says, what's your last name? I said, Henderson. So she t- 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 types it all in. She goes, oh, here it is. She goes, you're just here for one night. I said, yeah, just, just tonight. She says, no, what are you doing at the church? I said, well, um, I'm going to be speaking for a wild game dinner. And she says, what's that? I said, well, you know, a lot of guys that like to hunt and It's all the more I got out. I didn't even get to say anything else. She goes, oh, you're a hunter. And I'm going, oh, geez, here we go. And I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, I'm sorry. She goes, I just have a real pet peeve with hunters. And I said, why is that? She goes, I hate it when people go out and they kill these beautiful animals and they don't eat it. I I think it's wrong. And I said, I absolutely agree with you. I said, everything that I harvest, my family eats it or we give the meat to someone who can use it she goes, you know, I'm sorry. I, 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 it's none of my business really. And my son's listening and watching, how's dad going to handle this stuff, right? The confrontation. And she looks down at my bow case. And I kept thinking, what is she looking at? And I forgot. I had a sticker on there and it says, I love animals. They're delicious. <laughs> and now I'm going, yeah, now it makes sense. You know, and she's entitled to her viewpoint, whatever it is. Um, you know, I want to respect her, but you know, the way she was kind of handling it with me, you know, it was just a little bit edgy. And so she gets done checking me in, and she hands me my room key, and she says, well, Mr. Henderson, I hope you have a good wild game dinner or whatever the thing is you do, and uh, kind of mocking me in a way. And I said, thank you. And I went to leave, and, and my son, you know, he's watching going, okay, Dad handled that pretty good. And then she says, I, I hope I didn't offend you. I said, no. I said, you know, you're, you're entitled to your own opinion. She says, well, don't you have any pet peeves? And my son's looking to be giving me that hand across the neck like, shh, Dad, don't say a word. And I said, well, yeah. She goes, well, like what? I said, well, it's these people that hate hunters and they go out and buy a chicken sandwich, eat half of it and throw the rest of it away. (laughs) Boom. And my son's like, I can't believe he just said that. You know, it wasn't one of my finer moments. It was probably well deserved. Um, But, you know, it's in those situations when we have these challenges, you know, we don't learn how to handle things unless we go through difficult situations. I mean, jumping into something really difficult right away, let's, let's just go back to David in the Bible. You know, he, he's had an affair. And I get people all the time, you know, they're saying to me, you know, if, if God really loves us, why does he allow us to go through difficult things? Why does he allow bad things to happen? You know, here's David, I mean, having an affair and all this stuff. Well, why did he allow David to have the affair? Because he loved him. You're going, what do you mean he loved him? Because he knows this. In order for David to learn what God needs him to learn, he's gonna have to fall pretty hard. You know, some of the the bottoms that we hit, for some of us, bottoms are lower than other ones, right? I mean, we it's like, isn't that guy ever gonna hit bottom? I mean, he just keeps making these big mistakes. But here's the thing: every one of us have had experiences that shape how we believe. And a lot of those things weren't pretty, right? I mean, we we can begin to, to learn how to get into someone's world when we use empathy. But David, you know, he had to make this big mistake because God needed him to see. And here's the thing. You can't see until you can see. You can't know something until you really know it. And we get so impatient with, with others sometimes, and we think they should know it. I, I'm going to write a book someday called Don't Should on Yourself. <laughs> or don't, Stop Shooting on others, right? Should, S-H-O-U-L-D we put should statements on other people because we think they should be acting in a certain way. But chances are, if you knew their story, they're acting exactly how they should be acting given their background. doesn't mean that it's right. doesn't mean that it's healthy, but once you can understand what they've been through and what their belief system is, now it makes sense why they're acting, you know, the way they're acting. But you know, gosh, for some of us, we've got to hit, um, we got to hit hard. Uh, I'm going to tell you my story here in just a little bit. And it's, it doesn't bother me now to, to share my own personal shipwreck. And we talked about shipwreck, um, you know, a few weeks ago, but we have personal shipwrecks and I'm going to, you know, I think it's important that, you know, I'm as authentic with you guys as I can be. Uh, there's no reason for me to try to be on a pedestal or, or try to act a certain way. Um, every one of us, we've made mistakes. We all have sin, but, you know, after touring, I talked about Christian music, um, Gosh, you know, when I was out on, on tour, I'd feel like a somebody, right? You'd be in the tour bus and, you know, you'd pull in and everyone would be, who's on the bus? You know, and you'd feel like a somebody and you try not to, you know, you're trying to be the, you know, God loving, humble thing. You know, but when you're singing out there, we were like in front of, you know, eight, 10,000 people a night. It begins to wear on you. You do begin to somehow think that somehow you're set apart a little bit and, and we are all set apart, but I'm talking about in a prideful way. And then we get back off the road and I begin to feel like a nobody. Get back out there on tour again, I'd feel like a somebody. Get home and I'd feel like, you know, just an anybody. And, you know, pretty soon, you know, I was raising, you know, small children. I'm changing poopy diapers and all that stuff. And you begin to feel like a nobody. You know, no one knows your name. It's like cheers and when everyone knows your name. But when you kind of stop doing that thing that you've been known for, you begin to realize where you've been parking your car, you know, what that space used to say, and it might say something different now and the respect you get from it, which is a really dangerous thing. As we talked about identity, clear back in week one, we talked about performance in week two, that when I begin to believe that my worth and value really does come from what I do and what others think of me, man, that's just setting setting myself up for failure. And like my son, I'm not teaching him how to handle some of these difficult situations you know, if I don't have my head on straight, you now why do I need to argue with someone? Because of identity, you know, you're a hunter. Well, you know, I look at that word with respect. She wasn't. Well, then why did it offend me so much that I felt like I needed to, you know, blame or defend? And that's something that we all do when we're, when we're buying into these lies. But, you know, I would feel like a nobody when we get back off tour. And so I think I had been off the road just a couple of years. Uh, I hadn't been touring. I have been touring for like 20 years. And I got a phone call from a church, which was real close to back where I grew up in Pennsylvania. And they said, man, I know you're not on the road. Would you be interested in coming and being, you know, the, the worship leader at the church? And I was like, well, you know what? I think it's time for me to kind of get off the road and raise my kids. So moving back to this area of Pennsylvania is real close to where I grew up. And I knew every deer trail. I knew every trout stream. I mean, great. Uh, ESPN used to do specials up there on the trout. You know, the trout fishing was so good. And I'm like, you know what? This takes me back to my old stomping grounds. I want to do this. I, I, I love that area. I didn't think I'd ever you know, do that. I, I I loved being on the road, but moved my family back there. And a buddy that was at the church that I, I knew, he knew of a hunting hole for trout that I had never been to before. And this place was not too far out of Erie, Pennsylvania, and it was a, a stream called Elk Creek. Now, Elk Creek is crystal clear, and it's, um, you know, it's knee-deep to maybe as high as your head. It's not a really deep creek, and it's full of steelhead and uh, and trout. You know, they stock it. I used to, you know, go with the, uh, um, you know, game commission when they'd be stocking out of these trucks. You'd take nets of trout, you know, dump them in in different spots. But he took me to this spot. Now, the place where he took me, you've got these streams coming together just upstream a little bit, and when it comes around a bend, it forms a, a whirlpool. And this whirlpool is, you know, normally six to eight feet deep. But it's where everything pulls up. The steelhead and the trout love this because you have this rippling water coming in. There's lots of oxygen. And so we went up there at the beginning of trout season. And it was the, I think it was close to opening day, maybe a couple of days after. And I forget what the limit was. I forget whether it was three or five trout, whatever it was. Um, I mean, we both limited out in 20 minutes. We're done. Now, I had never taken my son since we'd been back there fishing yet. And he was really wanting to go fishing. And this would have been in the spring of 2003. So he was, I think, eight. So I'm going to take him up there the next day, but it it rains, and it's cold. You know, when you're talking, you know, in in early April, I mean, it's, it's cold. You know, you still have some, you know, below freezing days. So day two, still raining. We can't go. It's cold. Day three, pouring rain. Well, what I didn't understand about Elk Creek is it's got a lot of feeder streams coming into it, but the outlet, you know, going into the Big Lake is where things are dumping, so when you get hard rains... Coming in from all these feeder streams, it makes that water get fast and high really quick. But I didn't even do the math in my head about that. And I, you know, get up that morning. It's not, it's not going to be raining. It's, it's, it's freezing. It's like 31 degrees. But it'll warm up. We'll be good, you know. So we get, you know, a thermos with hot chocolate for him, you know, Pringles and put them in a baggie and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and stuff. And I'm going to take my son fishing. So it's about an hour and 20-minute drive maybe. I don't know, something like that. And we get to the location, and I'd only been there once, but I remembered how to get to this spot. And there's a path we have to walk down to to get to the, to the water. And as we park, I don't see any other cars there. And, the, I mean, you know, three or four days before, I mean, it was packed for, with cars. And I, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Is there some reason they would have shut the season down on this day? Is it some weird thing here? No, just guys were smart. They knew that it wasn't the right day to fish. But you know me, i got to take my son fishing, so we get our hip waders on and you know, tackle boxes and fishing poles and lunch, and we get down to the edge of the water. It's just starting to get light, and the water sounded even different. I mean, it didn't sound like it did, that nice rippling water. It was, it was rushing pretty good. And, but all I'm thinking is take my son fishing. So I, I get my flashlight out because I'm, I'm trying to make sure I have everything I need because it's still a little bit dark, and I, I shine it down in the water. And instead of the water being crystal clear like it had been, you know, just those four days prior, it looks more like my son's chocolate milk now from breakfast. And, you know, again, I'm still not doing Here's what I'm thinking. I'm not even thinking about, you know, this could be a mess out there when we get out there. I'm thinking, oh, the water's going to be dark. i got to use a different color lure. And that's what I was thinking. So I get my son on my back. You know, he's got his hip waders. I've got mine. We've got tackle box, fishing poles, lunches. I start wading out. And what had normally been, you know, knee-deep when I first start to get in, it's already up um, you know to my waist But I remember, hey, I only have to get out there maybe about 25 yards or so across this thing to where there was, where that whirlpool, where it comes around where these streams come around the bend and hit this one whirlpool, you know, there's a little rock island that might have been 15 yards long or something that we stood on to fish those days prior. And I'm thinking, I just got to find that. Well, it's getting light. I've got him on my back. And if you've ever been like on a stream where the water is so swift and it's got like, you know, shale rock and stuff on the bottom, real loose rock. I've got him and I'm trying to make it across this water. And now the water is up over my waist. It's up over my belly. And I'm starting to like when I take a step, I'm literally starting to float a little bit because it was getting deep and I can't get my footing. And I'm being sucked downstream, you know, take one step forward and you go three downstream. So I'm trying to angle myself to get to where I needed to be. Finally, and, and the water is pouring in my, my waders now. I mean, I'm, I'm soaked. I mean, to the core, it's, you know, 31 degrees. The, the water's freezing cold. And I finally find about six or seven feet of rock showing instead of 15 yards. So I get over there. I, I take my son off. I'm soaked. I'm freezing and I look at my son, I go, I said, Garrett, this is not a good thing. We're going we're gonna to have to get out of here. But I'm, I'm afraid to take you back the way we just came across. I said, that was really, really swift. And I said, I am really freezing here. I said, let me, let me think through this for a second. Now, the hillside around where this whirlpool is, is got like these 30-foot tall rock cliffs. And that's why the water, when it gets to this spot, it goes around the bend. It's, it, you know, it kind of keeps it from flowing over the side because it's 30 feet tall. And I can see there's a little bit of a ledge around that cliff. If I can just get across and, and make it. So I go down below the whirlpool and I leave him. I said, just stay right here. I'll be right back. I'm going to take the gear and I'm going to, you know, get against that, that cliff and try to ease my way around to where the two streams are above the whirlpool. Because I'm thinking in my head, well, two small streams have to be shallower, you know, and, and less violent than one big stream. So I get the stuff, I get around the back of that cliff, and I get above the whirlpool. I take one step down into this water, and my bottom of my boot hits a moss-covered rock, sweeps me off my feet, I slap sideways, and I get sucked into this whirlpool. Now, this was spring melt, so you have, you know, tree branches and everything. It's kind of been all tangled up in this thing. And if you've ever been, like, body surfing at the ocean, um... You know how, like, you'll be, you get swimming, you get on the top of that wave, and if you hit it wrong, it'll throw you off the top, and the next thing you know, you're tumbling, you know, one after another, and you kind of have to ride it out until you can figure out which way is up. You know, you're being smacking in the bottom, is dragging you and stuff. It's exactly what it was like in this thing. But what I found out was it wasn't six to eight feet deep that day. It was closer to probably 12 to 16 feet, according to what we we would find out in just a little bit. So I'm, I'm cartwheeling. I mean, I'm being sucked, and I'm cartwheeling underneath this thing, and I'm hitting stuff. And I can remember thinking, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. God, take care of my son. Because my son, remember, he's still standing up there. He sees me disappear. He's watching this whole thing happen. I do not know what it was, if it was a rock or a log or whatever it was, but whatever it was down on the bottom of this hole, I hit it hard, and it stopped me. And I was able to take my feet and I push off and I come back to the surface, and I'm and I'm backstroking to my son. Tackle boxes and fishing poles still in my hand. Go figure that one out. Yeah, what do you hold on to when things go bad? And my son is, you know, he's he's you know screaming for me and everything, and I'm yelling, you "No, know, Garrett, stay there!" I'm as much as I can yell, and I'm backstroking and I get to where this little bit of a this little rock island was, and I crawl up onto this thing. I'm on my hands and knees. And, I'm, and I've got water pouring out of my waders. And I am, I mean, I'm soaked to the bone. And I'm so cold. My son looks at me and he says, Dad, your lips are turning blue. I said, buddy, we're in trouble. I do not know how to get out of here. I, and I'm, I'm freezing. I'm shaking like crazy. And so I'm looking around and trying to figure out what to do. And so, I mean, human instinct, I just begin to start yelling for help. And there's nobody. Maybe three, four minutes go by. And above that cliff, back over behind it, I hear this voice and I look up and here's this like 15 year old kid. And then his brother comes up. He's like 13 and they're yelling for their dad, dad, dad. They come over and look down. It was the local fish commissioner and his boys. He came over to see if there was anybody stupid enough to fish on a day like this. Right. It's like, yep, here's my sign. <laughs> so they see what's going on. They're able to get around another way. They come to the other side where we had originally come across a the stream. They break off some sticks and make a big human chain. And they get over and they get us, and I can remember he took my son and put him on his back uh, because I was freezing and it was all I could do to get back. And when he's taking my son across the stream to get back, my son slips. He's so wet, and he falls in this stream, and before he can get sucked away, I'm telling you, this game warden spins around, grabs him by the back of his jacket, pulls him out. We get back to the truck, and, you know, I I brought a change of clothes because you're thinking, you know, you never know what an eight-year-old might do, you know, falling in the water, but Here will be me. It's more bow soaked to the bone. And my son gets in the back of the truck. You know, I've got a cap on there, and we're getting changed. And he looks at me, and he starts to pray. But he's giving thanks. He said, God, thank you for rescuing um, uh, my dad and me from that watery grave. That's what he called it. He called it the watery grave. He said, thank you for rescuing us from that and he says, and thank you for sending those those guardian angels, talking about the game warden and his sons. And then he calls them the Navy SEALs of the universe. That's the way that my son used to think about guardian angels, um, that they were like the Navy SEALs of the universe. And so, you know, it's it's a powerful story. And I came, we moved back here, and I'll, and I'll tell you why we moved back and all that stuff here in just a minute. But when we moved back, it's been, you know, it had been years um, since I'd even thought about this and I was writing a book called Into the Wilds. It was one of my uh, last two books that came out. It came out about five years ago. But I'm telling a man who had mentored me for about 10 years, I'm telling him this story. And I said, I'm going to put this in my new book. I said, you know, what do you think? There you go, other people's opinions, right? No, we're seriously, what do you think about this? He says, that's a powerful story. And uh, he said, but you, you kind of made the the point of the story... You know this watery grave and that these Navy seals of the universe. He says that's 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 cute. <laughs> I'm thinking okay, but he says but I think you missed the point of the story. I said what do you mean? He said uh, was it a good thing or a bad thing you hit bottom in that whirlpool? I said it was terrible. Didn't you hear the story? He said but you said this this water hole was was like twelve to sixteen feet that day, right? I said yeah. He said and this was a whirlpool. I said yeah. He said. What would have happened had you only been sucked down to eight feet, six feet, or even four feet? I said, I'd have drowned because I'd have never hit bottom. I'd have never been able to get back out of that stuff. He says, then let me ask you again. Was it a good thing or a bad thing that you hit bottom? Wow. I don't know if you felt that, you know, when I just said that, but, you know, we, we don't Look at life sometimes it as these challenges that we face are gifts until you hear something like that. And that's that, that zinger, that aha moment. You know, was it a good thing or a bad thing? You hit bottom. When I'm speaking for men's retreats, I do a lot of those as well, and I get to hear guys' stories, and we'll break into small groups and be talking. And by the time we get through the end of that weekend, they're able to see the gift and the challenge. They're coming up and saying, you know what? I'm so glad that happened to me because, you know, I would never know what I know now. I could never see what I, I can see now. So it's really important that we begin to uncover, again, the lies of the enemy because he wants you to think that these challenges, you know, they're bad. They're not good. But like we talked about with David, um, God allowed him to have that affair because he needed him to see something. He needed him to know something. So let's, let's bring this, you know, that, that crazy story. That was kind of a home front in a way, but let's, let's make it more personal. Let's come back to the kind of stuff that we all face Um. I was, I was in Pennsylvania a few years ago, and I was, I was speaking. I did a game dinner on one night, and then the next morning we did, like, a, uh, a men's breakfast. And they were doing, like, an accountability group that morning at breakfast. And, guys, accountability groups are great. But let me just say, be very careful. I, I like calling them, you know, holding each other capable. Um, because we are capable of much more. Because sometimes when we use the word, I'm going to hold you accountable, it, fou- it feels almost like reporting to your parole officer, right? It doesn't feel like there's much love and freedom in that. It's more about trying to fix and control. Uh, man, go back to Romans 14, 4. If there's corrections to be made or manners to be learned. God can handle that without your help. But he absolutely wants us walking together. And accountability is a good thing. And not just you know, confessing our sins one to another like the Bible talks about, because that is powerful. We need to be doing that. It keeps us humble and it does keep us accountable. But I want to challenge you guys in just kind of a left turn, Clyde. I want you to be thinking about even confessing your temptations to those guys around you that are safe, because that really um, takes the stinger out. What the enemy's trying to do to you, if you can say, you know, the enemy's been tempting me with this lately, man, you've already taken the control away because now you're not trying to hide it, right? You're you're confessing it to someone, and their chances are they're going, you know what? I get hit with that same temptation. They don't feel alone. And then you can begin to process, you know, how do you, how do you defeat the enemy when he's coming after us like this? But that morning at that church, they were going through an accountability thing. And, you know, I, I was going to be speaking for it. And I get up and they've got a music stand with all the notes for these small groups they're about to break into. And as he's praying, I look down at this list and there's like 10 questions. You know, number one is like, have you looked lustfully at a woman this week? Number two, have you lied to anyone this week? number 3 have you managed your money number 4 have you dated your wife it's all this big to do list and then when you get to the very end the 10th question says have you lied about any of your responses today and i and i get the point of it i so, totally do but i think we have to be really careful because discipleship is not about a to do list um i'll ask a lot of times i'll ask guys you know what do you think it means to to disciple someone and you know a lot of times i'll get christian men they'll say things like well you need to you know, tell someone they need to go to church. You need to get in Sunday school. You need to read the Bible. You need to get baptized. You need to get into a small group. And those are all very important and great things. But they don't have as much to do with discipleship as you would think. And I'll, I'll be talking to someone out in the street that, that doesn't know God, and I'll say, what does it look like to you to mentor your, your son? He'll say, teach him how to walk. Teach him how to talk. Teach him how to manage his money. Love his wife. Teach him how to fight. Discipleship is about relational living. You know, my dad would... would uh, be working on something in the basement, and he would come down, and he would have a flashlight, and he would give it to me, and say, "I want you to hold the flashlight while I do this." And then when he was done, he would take the flashlight and have me do what he was just doing. See, it's about learning to walk together. Discipleship is about learning to live life uh, together. Um, so, get done with that uh, morning breakfast, and then I have to speak in the main service at church. So I go in, I get done with the service. And I sit down in the front row and I'm sitting beside the pastor and the pastor goes, hey, he said, we have a guy in the back, uh, in the church in one of the little Sunday school classrooms. And he got kicked out of his house and, uh, his wife caught him looking at porn, um, on Friday night. And he, he had been a porn addict for years. He's been sober for quite a while. So she thought, and when she found it, she told, uh, you know, their, their girls and she kicked him out of the house and he's not allowed to come back. Uh, until he gets help for his addiction. I said, okay. She goes, yeah, he's back there. He's, he's praying with somebody, one of our elders right now. So I go, I go walking back there and and he says, oh, and by the way, we also let him go from his leadership role here at the church. He was on our leadership team. I said, oh man, I'm sorry. So I go back and I, I walk in and there's this, you know, the elder and you know, he's, he's pretty elderly and you know, it was obvious. He probably grew up in a very workspace, uh, Theology, you know, like we said, you know, it's what you do um, that counts rather than Christ in you, and He's doing the whole, you know, God forgive this man for his sin and you know the shame He's brought upon his daughters and his wife and his church and the pain He's caused and, and to Himself, and it's it's all the shame and condemnation stuff, right? There wasn't a whole lot of conviction stuff. It was all about yeah, you know, how bad this guy was, and. So I kind of, if you can remember, going back to um, the bear story where the cabin was and that they had the two eight penny nails. Remember I talked about that one of the episodes. And so I look, I'm looking for the door, and I say, "Hey, I said, um, Pastor wants me to talk with him for a few minutes." And he says, "Oh." And so he leaves, and I'm looking for those eight penny nails and shoes trying to to lock that door, right? And so I lock the door behind them, and I go walking back over and I sit down and I said, "Man," I said, uh, he was he was sobbing. I mean, their shame was thick. And I pulled up a chair. I said, "Hey, sit down." And I said, uh, first of all, I want you to know something. I don't I don't care what your sin was. You know, I do care about you, and I do care about the lies you bought into that, that got you to go there. That's what I really care about. Um, let's untangle those things together. And so I, I kind of let him stop crying for a second. I said, you know, I'm, I, I really do understand the pain you're going through. Um, let's see what we can do here. So there was a, an old blackboard, remember, like we used to have when we were in school when we were young? And so I, I was born in 19... 19- you get that? <laughs> it's 1978. I was born in 1960, graduated high school in 78, but we had blackboards in the 60s. So I get this, there's chalk. I'm like, I haven't seen this in years. And so I'm writing on this thing and I make two columns on the blackboard. And I said, uh, one column is going to be advantages and one's going to be disadvantages. So what I'm doing is basically a cost benefit. You've heard of those before probably, but I like the words advantages and disadvantages. So I write down, I say, I want you to give me a disadvantage to what just happened to you this weekend. He says, oh, that's easy. He said, I've been kicked out of my house. I'm not allowed to come back until I get help for my addiction. I said, all right. So I wrote that down under the disadvantages column. I said, give me another one. He said, oh, man. He says, you know, I'm going to have to learn how to figure out where all the bank accounts are and how to pay bills. He goes, she does all that. I, I don't do any. He says, okay, so I have to learn how to pay bills. I wrote that down. Give me another one. He says, she does all the cooking. I have no clue how to cook, and I said, "All right, I'm going to have to learn how to cook." And I'm just kind of laughing at that one, you know. And I said, "All right, give me give me another one." He goes, "Well," he says, "I got kicked off the leadership team this morning." He says, "I'm totally humiliated." So I wrote that down. You know, I was kicked off the team. I'm totally humiliated. I said, "Do you got any more?" He says, "That's all I can think of off the top of my head." It's all right. I said, "Give me some advantages then. Let's let's fill that side in." And he says, "There are no advantages." I said, "Well, in the disadvantages, you said." I can't come back home until I get help for my addiction. And he says, yeah, I, I already set up an appointment. I have an appointment for Wednesday night. He go- I said, oh, so you're going to be getting help for your addiction. That's an advantage. So we moved the disadvantage over to the advantage column. I just drew an arrow and said, that's over here now. I said, is it a good thing or a bad thing? You don't know how to pay your bills. And he goes, it's not a good thing. I drew an arrow. I get to learn how to pay my bills. Advantage. I get to learn how to cook. Advantage. He says, but what about this last one? you know, I was kicked off the leadership team and I am totally humiliated. I said, let me ask you a question. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to learn how to walk in humility? You could see it on his face. He began to see the gift that was in this challenge that he was facing. And the way that his pain was being handled by those that that loved him, but didn't know how to walk in his shoes, get into his world. You know, they were using condemnation to try to get him to change. You know, behavior modification, it works for a while, but I've never known anyone where behavior modification rearranges their life. It just doesn't. You have to learn how to renew your mind because it's what's at the root that's causing you the problem that you have to get down to, not just the unhealthy fruit on the tree. So, You know, there's a huge difference between conviction and condemnation. You know, conviction is about what God wants, right? Condemnation is about what the enemy wants. You see, one frees us and invites us to walk in the light, but the other one enslaves us and it keeps us hiding in the darkness. You go back to, uh, let's take a look at some scriptures here for a second. If you go back to like Matthew 5, and and again, I've said before, you know, this this podcast, I'm going to be using the message uh, paraphrase because I just love um, the relatability sometimes with this, but I love Matthew 5.3. It says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God in his rule, more of his glory. When you're at the end of your rope, you get to see him come through, just like that hitting bottom. There's no way that I could have done that without God being the one to save. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, all this trouble is a clear sign that God has decided to make you fit for the kingdom. He wants you to be able to see. He wants you to be able to know. And whatever that bottom is that you're refusing to hit. You know, we go to sin for a reason because it's always attractive. Because sin has an immediate payoff. And I've said before, sin is an illegitimate way of getting a legitimate need met. But we're going to the wrong place. And God needs to make us fit for the kingdom. And I, I love coming back, Matthew 5, 4, it says, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You know, we, we all, um, when we lose a job or we lose a title or whatever those things are, you now we begin to feel like we've lost our identity because we've put our identity in the wrong place. And I have a saying that says this, whatever names you, owns you whatever names you owns you so what is it you know is it you know how you look is it fame maybe if you're a student in school maybe it's your grades you know maybe it's what your house looks like your job title your education you know are you popular how many likes how many loves are you getting on social media you know what are other people saying about you you know are you athletic you know there's just so many different ways that we can try to get our worth and value And that really becomes a challenge because when others don't see us the way we want them to, we begin to hit bottom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I love this quote. He says, we must ruthlessly eliminate any attempt to make something of ourselves. We have to ruthlessly eliminate any attempt to make something of ourselves. Why? Because thieves don't break into an empty house. You know, does God want us broken? Yeah, he absolutely wants us broken. But does he want us to stay broken? No. He wants us to be healed. Look, Let's go back and look at Paul for a second here. I mean, Paul, think about all the stuff. This guy was stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, all these things. And how did Paul see those challenges? Look at what he says. He says, because of the extravagance of those revelations, he's talking about these things that have happened, the understanding he's getting now. And he says, and so I wouldn't get a big head, I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angel did his best to get me down, but what he did, in fact, was push me to my knees. And then he says, no danger then of walking around high and mighty. He says, at first I didn't think of it as a gift, and he says, I begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, and then he told me, my grace is enough, it's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, he says, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now listen to this. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks. He says, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. See God's purpose and guidance; it's not to get us to perform the right actions. His purpose is to help us become the right kind of men. That is so important. You know, I had a, a pastor one time tell me that God cares more, you know, about our character, right, than than our actions. He cares about you know what's developing inside of us. So I told you at the very beginning of this, I was going to you know get a little bit, um, a little bit raw. Uh, inauthentic. And this is, man, this is, this is sometimes hard, uh, because whenever you, you feel like you're having your shorts dropped in gym class, whenever you tell on yourself. And uh, if any of you ever had that happen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I told you about my hitting bottom when I first moved back to Pennsylvania and it was in that watery grave, but I hit another kind of bottom about four and a half years later that to this day, you know, the enemy still loves to try to, uh, you know, bring that condemnation, uh, back up. Um, you know, God, I was convicted of my sin and God turned my, my thoughts in a different way, but the enemy, he loves to keep using condemnation, um, to try to, to bring you down so you won't be effective, so you won't stay in the game, right? So I had been at this church, um, about four years. And when I got there, you know, everything was going great. It was the church was running maybe 150 people and it grew to like 12 or 1500 in the first, you know, four years. And we, I think we only added like one staff member. So, you know, the, there was a lot of work that was, was going on there. I was doing, I think I was doing, by the time I was done, three different praise teams and three different services, you know, the choir, you know, welcoming in new guests, um, you know, puppet ministry, all these different things. And I said, hey, I said, could I, could I start a men's ministry? They said, well, you got a pretty big job description as it is. And I'm like, yeah, but my passion is working with guys. So I started an archery ministry, an outdoor ministry there as well. And I mean, we had like 70 guys that didn't even go to the church, show up at the very first one. We were tapping into what their passions were. And that ended up becoming where most of my focus would end up being and eventually to why I'm talking to you guys today. But this is the rest of the story and how I got there. So I'm going to keep this you know, fairly short, and we can go into it another time, but long story short, there was a woman um, who was working in the, in the, the office with me, and um, you know, I was, I was having some struggles at home. There were some things that were going on, and she began to speak some, some words of life to me when I was needing encouragement, and you can see where this is going. Now, I never met this person outside of the workplace, but emotionally, my heart began to go somewhere else. Until it lasted I don't know how how long it was, um a matter of weeks, until eventually um we both came clean and it was painful. I, I just tell you this, it was incredibly painful. And you know, the way that it was handled, I think they did the best they knew how to do it, but they didn't know what to do with the situation and so you know, there was a, a long list, you know, I had to go through a 12-step, I had to go through, um, you know, in case there was financial problems, that wasn't the problem. Um, you know, go to out-of-state counseling, everything we can to try to fix the problem. And again, challenges are gifts. There was a lot of gifts that came out of that. But the one thing that I'll never forget is I went to the 12-step and I drove an hour and a half away to get to it because I didn't want anyone to know I was going. And I walked in and I'll never forget hearing this guy talking about being a sex addict, being an alcoholic, all these things. And he began to, to confess, you know, all of his stuff. And I'm going, how does he have this kind of freedom? Well, for the next year, I would go through with Celebrate Recovery until, you know, it really helped. I was on my feet, but I ended up moving my family because the last thing required of me was I had to get up in front of all three services and confess my sin. You know, and at that point, I was so ashamed, tail between my legs, move my family back to the state of Indiana. You know, I thought... I just, I wanted to die. And I literally got to the point where I almost took my own life. And I'll just be honest about that. But I heard Tony Evans speaking on a radio broadcast when I was alone in one moment. And he was talking about my identity. And that it comes from Christ and not what anybody else has to think about me. And So wrapping this up, we moved back and I went to a 12-step one night. And they had asked me to come and speak. And this guy gets up and he starts off and he says, Hi, my name is Tom. Everybody says, Hi, Tom. He says, I'm a sex addict and an alcoholic. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. With that, I pass. And I, I went, Something's wrong with what he just said. So afterwards, I talked to the facilitator and I said, Hey, is there any way that we can change the intro to what everyone's saying when they introduce themselves? He says, well, What do you mean? I said, Well, he said, My name is Tom. I'm an alcoholic and a sex addict and a believer in Jesus Christ. He says, Yeah, he's, he's confessing to you his sin. I said, No. He's identifying himself by his sin. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a sex addict. He says, what would you do different? I said, what about this? Hi, my name is Tom, and I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And when I'm believing lies, I struggle with things like sex addiction and alcohol. Huge difference. God allowed me to hit bottom in a way that I never thought I ever would, and it was painful. But since my train wreck, and that was in 2006... Guys, I've seen over 16,000 men come to Christ at my events, and in all my years in music, I don't think I saw 16 men come to Christ. God knew that I needed to taste and understand and see and know his grace and forgiveness in order to be the kind of person that God wanted me to be. You know, if you've had a personal shipwreck, all is not lost. And I want to say this, perhaps it's only the beginning of a greater plan that God has for your life. So guys, get on your knees, but then get back on your feet. It's time to silence the enemy. It's time to get back in the game because, man, your strength is desperately needed. It's time to roar, my friend. It's time to become unleashed. We'll see you next time.